Thank you, Lauren. Good morning, fellowship. Good to see you all. Real fast before I jump into the text, and we are back in John this morning. Actually, we got back in John last week, if you were here last week. But before we jump back into John this morning, let me just say this. Thank you to those of you that have already been a part of our follow campaign. Um, I'm excited how it's going. You know, we'll share with you two weeks from today where we are. I can tell you, though, that we've had about a half of our uh, families be a part of this so far. And uh, it's going very well, and it's going to take everybody being a part of this uh, for us to be able to plant roots in a new location and be able to have um, a building that will outlive us, Lord willing, so that our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren's generation would have a place that they're worshiping Jesus in a, in a culture that's increasingly changing. And so this is the vision that we have, and we want to invite you to be a part of that here at Fellowship. And so uh, this week, the boxes are available. If you want to fill out that commitment card, you can also go online at that website. Uh, it's our church address slash follow, and you can fill out a commitment there. It's not like a normal offering where you, you give immediately. You can, and we certainly would encourage uh, a give an initial gift. But the real number that we need is what's your intention over a three-year period of time? Because that's what we need to know in order to know if we're able to move forward um, with uh, our hopes and, and plans and where we believe God is leading us to go. So I want to encourage you to be a part of that with us. Open your Bibles now to John chapter 15. While you're turning there, uh, let me remind you of a story that many of you are quite familiar with. At the very beginning of The Lord of the Rings, we meet the hobbit Frodo, and he is living a very happy hobbit life in the Shire, kind of minding his own business, until he is called away on a great adventure by the wizard Gandalf. And Frodo leaves willingly, and yet on the other hand, somewhat reluctantly. It's hard to leave his home, and he's away for a long time, battling evil, enduring all kinds of suffering. And what keeps him going along with his several other hobbit friends that are on the journey with him, what keeps them going is someday returning to the Shire. Someday it will all be over. Someday we'll get to go home. But when Frodo finally does go home, returns to the Shire, he realizes something has changed. And the biggest thing is what's changed inside of him. He is different. There's something new and deep and strong inside of Frodo. He's no longer the same hobbit he was before. He's come alive in ways that he was not alive to before. He has endured profound suffering that sets him apart from the hobbits of the Shire. He's back among his own people, but in some ways he's more alone than ever. In other words, home for Frodo is no longer home. Although he still loves the Shire, he senses he belongs somewhere else, and the other hobbits sense it too. He's now a little strange to them. He's not exactly one of them anymore. And this is the way Frodo puts it to his friend Sam, who was on the journey with him. He said, we set out to save the Shire, Sam, and it has been saved, but not for me. And so Frodo, along with his uncle Bilbo and the other elves and the wizard Gandalf, board a ship and they depart for the undying lands, which is now Frodo's true home. In the message, or in the passage that we're in, in John chapter 15, the disciples are having a conversation with Jesus where he is telling them, because of your journey with me, something in you has changed. And it's changed to such a degree that your home is no longer your home. The place where you were born and grew up in is now apart from you, not a part of 
you. The beginning of chapter 15, which Larry covered last week, did a really wonderful job with that. Jesus had said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. In other words, Jesus is telling them his life had come into them and they're different because of it. He is in them, they are in him. And because of that life that is in them and, and the adventure and journey that they'd been on following Jesus, there's something new and deep and strong inside of them. They've come alive in ways they weren't alive to before. And part of what that means is like Frodo, home is no longer home. Jesus is saying the change in you affects the change in the way people will perceive you. They'll no longer consider you one of their own. The world is not your home, Jesus says. And that will not be easy. That's the message of our text this morning. Now let's read it. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25. I'll read the whole thing and then we'll go back and explain it. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. This is the living word of God for us today. Now, you know, that's, that last sentence I said is what we say after we read the scripture here at Fellowship because we believe that God wants to re-speak the text in our day and time to us. We feel like the truth of the text doesn't change. And yet, I have to acknowledge this morning, it doesn't always feel like this is the living word of God for us today. What do you mean the world hates us? I, I don't know that I feel that on a daily basis. Or maybe you might think occasionally here and there, uh, or perhaps it's like, well, we, we know the, the, the way the society and culture is changing, that it, it, the persecution is coming, but I don't know that I necessarily feel it or experience it now, uh, depending on what context you come from in another part of the world, another part of certainly another time in Christian history, there wouldn't be any question. You'd, you'd be nodding your head to this to say, oh, we know very well the hatred of the world. We've experienced it. We've experienced severe persecution. That's certainly how the, the church started and how it has endured for most of its history. And of course, there are those right now in places of our world that are being persecuted physically, being thrown in prison, suffering, being even tortured and killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And we might say, well, who knows? That may come to our day. What I want to talk about this morning is there's an underlying animosity of the world toward followers of Jesus that is true in all times and all places and is even true among us today. And, and I'm not even talking about true among us today in a way that wasn't true 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I'm saying there is a sense, the New Testament is very clear about this, that the, the, the animosity and hatred of the world toward followers of Jesus is unavoidably true in all times and all places. And this is what Jesus was preparing them for. I think we need to be prepared for this because it tends to catch us off guard in our day and time. Maybe we've been lulled to sleep a little bit, but I think this is why we need this text this morning. Jesus is saying, don't be surprised. In fact, you need to expect that the world 
hates you, that they're against you. And I know that's a strong word, you know, hating. And I want to explore that this morning. That's the word that Jesus chooses. But he also gives this comfort. He says, keep in mind, it's actually about me, not about you. They hated me before they hated you. They persecuted me. That's why they persecute you. It's about Jesus, not about us, ultimately. Okay, so today's text answers two questions, two important questions for us. Number one, why does the world hate followers of Jesus? And is that even the right way to say it? Why does the world hate followers of Jesus? That's the first question. That's the exposition of the text this morning. The second question is the application. And that is, how should we live as followers of Jesus in a world like that? How should we live in the hatred of the world? So a very cheery text this morning, you know, this is the beauty of expository teaching is that we, we don't handpick the passages that we want to talk about. But I will say this, even if we could, I, I still think we need to hear this message. And this is where God has brought us this morning for our time and our place. So question number one, let's go to verse 19 to, to get the answer. Why does the world hate followers of Jesus? Well, here it is. Right, right here. And uh, I think what I need to do is, oh, that's not showing up. I need to back out of this and see if I can get this fixed and come back in it. All right. Why does the world hate followers of Jesus? There we go. Jesus makes it very, very clear in verse 19 that if we were of the world, the world would love us as its own. But, and, and here's the, the key word, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you. So here's the key phrase right here. The world hates us because we're not of the world. Do you feel like you're not of the world? You know, do, do, you, do you feel foreign? Do you feel alien to the world? Jesus is saying the, the world's hatred is actually an automatic response to your new identity that makes you different. It's like Frodo coming back and the other hobbits are like, it's still Frodo, but I don't know. He's seen things we haven't seen and he's experienced things and he's, he's now engaging our world differently than before. He feels a little like an outsider. Now think about this. Part of the fallen human nature is to always be sort of um, guarded against outsiders, can we own that a little bit? You know, anybody that kind of comes in outside the tribe or if you've ever wandered into a small town that you're not from and you start poking around and asking questions, people are gonna kind of side eye you a little bit. You say, you're not from around here, are you? We, we tend, I think in our fallen human nature to just sort of be guarded against anything foreign. Uh, did you know you are an alien? You are an alien. This is what Jesus is saying. You're not of the world. What do we call someone or something that's not of the world? I call them an alien. <laughs> They're an outsider. Jesus is saying, you're not from the world. How does the world respond toward aliens? I'm going to get funny for, I can't promise I'll get funny, but <laughs> I, I, I'm going to talk about alien movies for a minute. How does the world respond toward aliens? There's two types of alien movies, okay? There, there's, the, there's the Independence Day kind, of alien movies. If y'all remember that movie that came out when I was in high school, it was a really big movie, Independence Day. And here's, here's how the Independence Day kind of alien movies work. The aliens come with bad intent and like they're coming to obliterate us or, you know, steal our resources or, you know, some, somehow take over the earth and we have to fight like mad in order to survive. Okay. That's one type of alien movie, but there's also the ET type of alien movie which the aliens come in peace. You know, they just want to know us or they want to learn from us or they want to study and explore. And, and we get so freaked out that we can't help but fight them, you know, because again, we're suspicious toward anything alien. The human instinct is to protect our own, is to, to be guarded. So what Jesus is saying actually makes a ton of sense. The world hates you because you're not of the world. And if that's true, 
that's gonna elicit that kind of response. Now, our problem is most of us, if we're honest, we're just like, I don't know that I elicit that kind of response. And, and I think the question I would ask us is, do you live as if you're not of the world? The way that I had heard this phrase growing up sounded like this. We are in the world, not of the world. And I always thought of myself, that's just sort of a, I don't know, a spiritual uh, way to put it. I I actually think there's some truth to this. And and I want to engage our brains around this. What does it mean to be in the world? Well, obviously we're living in it. Jesus hasn't, hasn't literally called us out yet of this earth, of this place where we live. We're certainly in it. We're born in it. We're living in it right now, in this very moment. So what does it mean that we're not of the world? Well, does this not go straight back to Jesus's words in John 15? You are not of the world. So what did he mean? How are we different? I think there's a lot of answers to that question. You could say, well, we're a new creation. We have the Holy Spirit in us. You could say our our beliefs are different of the world. You could say our morality is different than the world, our standard of right and wrong. I think all those things are true. I don't know that that's what provokes the hatred and animosity of the world as much as the core difference. And here's what I believe the core difference is. If you're a follower of Jesus, your allegiance has changed. Your allegiance has changed. Specifically, it's changed from yourself to the person of Jesus Christ. You you now have a master. You now have a, a Lord, so to speak. Now, Why is this different than the rest of the world? Well, every person born into the world is born with a natural commitment to ourselves. Like that's how we're born into the world, at least in our our fallen human nature. We're committed to our own survival. We're committed to our own preservation. We're committed to our own people, our own family, our own agendas even. We're committed to our own comfort, our own prosperity, our own flourishing. There's something in you and something in me that just says, I just, I want to live and I want to have life as much as I can have it. And, and that controls our decisions. It controls our decisions of, of what kind of job we should take and who we should marry. And we, we want to have as much of this life as we can. And Rob, are you saying that that is wrong? Well, when you start following Jesus, you're called to move in a different direction. And if you really pay attention to what Jesus says, you see this all over the place. He says, unless you're willing to leave your father and mother, you can't follow me. Think about what that means symbolically. Unless you're willing to take on a new allegiance, unless you're willing to have have a, a different kind of energy, a different kind of motivation, a different kind of mission, other than protecting me and mine, Unless you're willing to do that, you're not actually going to be following Jesus. He also says, if you're not willing to take up your cross. You know, he says all these things, right? These are hard, hard words. But the reality is, when you make a decision to follow Jesus, your allegiance changes. You're no longer committed to the, yourself. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You know, it's easy for us to say that, but just let that hit you for a minute. You're not your own. That's what shifts when you follow Jesus. Now, why would the world hate that? Again, let's think about this. The world moves always towards self. 
And, and anyone that's aligned with the principles of the world is, is controllable. Right? Anyone that's aligned with the principles of the world can be manipulated by self-preservation and, and by money and by promise of comfort. You know, it, but, but someone starts moving apart from that and, and commits themselves to the way of Jesus, which is, by the way, a downward trajectory of servanthood and sacrifice and serving. That's the model of Jesus for us. Oh man, that person becomes scary just as Jesus was scary. They can't be controlled. They can't be manipulated. Another way to say it, when you commit yourself to following Jesus, you're actually committing yourself to violating the world's principles and move in a different direction, to follow Jesus in a different direction. And the moment you dare to live out those new commitments, suspicion turns to hatred and even persecution. Let me just give you three examples that we can relate to in in different ways. Imagine you're a, a corporate attorney and you become a follower of Jesus and you can no longer turn a blind eye to the indiscretions of the firm. And your boss says, this is just no big deal. You know, you've been doing this for 10, 15 years. Just, you know, just, just turn a blind eye and you sign on the dotted line or whatever. You know, this is how we work around here. And you say, I, I can no longer do that. I, I have a different master now. Imagine uh, you're, you're a, a appointee, uh, you're in politics and you're a political appointee of some kind and you, you've lived your whole career just sort of doing whatever the, the party boss says that, that you need to do and suddenly you become a follower of Jesus and you think, I've got a different calling now. I'm actually here to serve. Uh, I'm a public servant and I wanna do that in a way that's Jesus-like. Like, how would Jesus live out this office? Here's even a different one. Imagine you're, a senior in high school and you decide to sacrifice your own popularity to befriend someone who's outside the cool kids. You know, this person has no social credibility and you bring them in alongside you. You're gonna do that at your own cost. You see, each of those three examples, those individuals will be persecuted in their own way because by their actions, they're declaring, I'm not committed to the same things you're committed to. And the moment you say that, you're on the outside looking in. So Jesus is saying, don't be surprised when you feel like you're on the outside looking in because you have a new allegiance now. Don't miss one of the main points in this whole passage is Jesus is saying, remember, it's about me, not about you. It's ultimately about me, not about you. Let's finish the rest of the text and and start to apply this to our lives. I'll just reread this part we've already read. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. In in other words, Jesus is saying, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And for those who kept my word, they'll also keep yours. They'll treat you the same way they treated me because it's about me ultimately, not about you, Jesus is saying. But then he goes in a different direction. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus says, ultimately, the animosity of the world is rooted in the animosity toward God himself. The God whom every person born into the world just naturally wants to rebel against, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, but we're always in our sinful nature moving toward independence, self-actualization. We don't want to be dependent on anyone, none the least of a God, a creator, who wants to be uh, ruled by some deity, this kind of thing. So Jesus is saying that they don't know him. <laughs> they don't trust him. They don't know his love. This is why they're fighting against him. They don't know him. 
He goes on, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. It's because Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. The words he spoke were the father's words. The actions he did were the father's actions. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Pause there for just a minute. Jesus is not saying they were sinless, like they were perfect before I came. What he's saying is the father came with an opportunity. The father, I came on behalf of the father. God came in me, Jesus is saying, spoke the words of the father, did the deeds of the father, put on display the father's love, and they rejected me. And that's the core sin. They rejected the God who'd come to help and save them. And then he goes on, verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Jesus is saying even their hatred has to be. It was prophesied. It must be in order for their own salvation. We'll talk more about that at the end of the message. But here, here's how I would summarize you know, 20, verse 20 through 25. God the Father sent his son into the world to do a great work in the world. To rescue, to renew, to overturn the world's systems which are twisted by sin towards selfishness and injustice. Ultimately to defeat the prince of the world who is Satan, the deceiver. Jesus said earlier in, in John's gospel, he said he, he is the, the liar and the father of all lies. So the, the world is blind. The world's been deceived. God, the Father has sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, to do a work on the world of, of rescue, of rescue. But they've not received. They've not received the rescue. They have hated me without a cause. Imagine a frightened animal trapped in a snare and, and a kind person comes to release the animal. The animal's not gonna willingly go. The animal's gonna fight the person that approaches them because they're so afraid. And, and they, they think even the rescuer has ill intents and so they'll, they'll fight. And Jesus is saying, this is, this is why I've come. And then he says, they're gonna treat you the same way because your mission is the same as mine. I am in you and you are in me. They persecuted me, they will persecute you. And Jesus is saying, this hard work is what I've been called to by my father and now what I am calling you to, my church. This hard work. Being a part of the rescue of a people who don't wanna be rescued, who don't know that they need rescue, who are blind and prideful. You see, they hate without a cause. So that leads us to the second question. How do we live in a world like this? How do we live in a world? It's, it's like trying to help a, a drug addict. And it's everything you come and you, you say to them, it's like, I, I, I desire your life. And they're just like, go away. You're just trying to make me miserable. Don't you see I need this drug? Don't you see? You must hate me if you want to take this from me. This is the picture of the world that we live in. So how do we live in it? How do we live in a world that hates us? Another way to say it, I'll put this on the screen, what do we do with the hatred of the world? Well, we know we must follow Jesus in it. So let's talk about three things that Jesus did as he lived in the hatred of the world. So th three, three things we learned from Jesus. How do we live with the world's hatred. This is our application this morning. Number one, don't avoid it. 
Don't avoid it. This may sound counterintuitive. Every, everything in you, just, at least your own flesh, everything in you wants to run away from hatred, wants to run away from conflict, wants to run away and hide. You know? Now that's half of us. The other half of us, you move toward conflict and you want to overpower the people, right? So let, let me talk specifically to people that are more like me, which is like, I want to avoid it. You know, I don't like fighting and these kinds of things. Jesus says, don't avoid the world's hatred. Now, here's how we follow Jesus in this. He never shied away from the fact that his mission to save the world would cost him his life. He never shied away from that. He set his face to Jerusalem knowing what it would cost him. In one of his temptations when he was in the wilderness, Satan came to him and tempted him. You know, the third temptation was this. Satan led him up on a high mountain where he could overlook all the lands. And Satan, the deceiver, he said, I'm gonna give this to you. It's, it's mine and, and I can give it to whom I wish. That was partially true, by the way. He, he is temporarily the prince of the world. He goes, it's mine and I'll give it to whom I wish and I'll give it to you right now, Jesus. All you have to do is bow the knee to me. That was the temptation. If you think about it, what I think Satan was tempting Jesus with was a shortcut to be the king of the world without the cross. In other words, to endure or, or, or to skip the enduring of suffering, to, to sort of move straight to the end without the hatred of the world, to, to save the world without experiencing the animosity of the world. And Jesus did not avoid the hatred of the world. He recognizes part of his mission to walk right into it. For some of us today, our fear of the world is the biggest thing that keeps us from following Jesus. We don't want to be looked down. We don't want to be looked over. We don't want to be left out. The world is fun. <laughs> the world has a lot of cool stuff. Man, the, the world is not kind of where it's at. I mean, isn't it, at the end of the day, isn't it sort of about enjoyment and pleasure and comfort and power and these things? And I've got to get what I can get. I don't want to turn away from those things. If Jesus is leading me to a downward trajectory, why would I want to do that? Listen, as long as you're just playing around with Christianity, you can avoid the hatred of the world. You can. And, and a lot of us, we, we just live there, don't we? But we're just playing around with Christianity. The moment you make a decision to follow Jesus puts you on a collision course with the world's hatred. It will. And it may not look, may not make the headlines. It may not look big. You know, it, it may be subtle in some ways in certain times, but you're on a collision course with the power structures of the world, with, with sort of the, the world operates and get what you can and it's selfishness and it's, I'm gonna overpower you with the strength of my argument or the power of my money and these kinds of things. You will be on a collision course with those power structures. James uh, chapter four, verse four, James said this, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Those are harsh words. Doesn't God love the world? Doesn't in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world? Yes. We'll talk about the parts, what God loves about the world. We'll get to there. But when James says, do not, you not know that friendship with God is enmity, it's friendship with the world's enmity toward God. He's saying, aligning yourself with the world's principles and the world's structures is turning you in the opposite way of God. 
Your, your allegiance has changed. Don't align yourself. Don't become an ally with the power structures and, and the principles of the world. Years ago, a spiritual mentor of mine looked me right in the eyes and he'd come to know me really well at this point in time and I really trusted him. So he kind of speaks some hard things to me. And this is what he said. He looked me straight in the eyes and he said, Rob, you seem very committed to everyone liking you. That's not the way of Jesus. <laughs> That's what I needed to hear. I still need to hear that. I think all of us, sometimes we need to be reminded Part of following Jesus means putting to death our craving to be approved, our craving to be accepted, or to keep up, or whatever, fill in the blank. Don't let the world's hatred keep you from following Jesus. That's not a good trade. It's not a good trade for you. It's not a good trade for the world either. There are plenty of people that are in that. Jesus has called us to be out, to be different, to be light in darkness, you see. Don't let the world's hatred keep you from following Jesus. Okay, let, let me talk about the other side. You know, I said earlier, so, some of us, you know, is afraid, you know, we, we run from the fight. Others of you just like, I'm going to take it on. Here's how I'd caution us on the other side as well. So we, we don't avoid the world's hatred, but, but if you want to follow Jesus, you also don't exploit the world's hatred. Now, let me explain what, what I mean. It, it means when someone slanders you or criticizes you or comes after you in some way, some of us have to fight the temptation to feel noble about ourselves and just kind of be like, oh, look at me. You know, the world is hating me. I must be something good. I must be following Jesus. You know, pride is never the way of Jesus. I want to go a little deeper on this one. Um, I read something Tim Keller wrote. He, you know, Keller passed away several months ago. He, he was such an astute observer of culture. And ministering in New York City, I think he was seeing and experiencing things in New York City that the rest of us are catching up to now and, and will be catching up to over the next 10 or 15 years. Here's what Keller wrote. This is so interesting to me. He said, we live in the first culture in history in which the only high moral ground that exists in our society is if you can prove you're part of a persecuted group. You have to prove you're a victim and that you're persecuted and then and only then can you get power over the people who oppose you. You can vilify them, you can denounce them, you can attack them, but you have to first prove that you're persecuted. Isn't this interesting? You have to first prove that you're persecuted. You see, what Keller is picking up on is in a society where there's no more God, you know, there's no more standard belief in God and what God would say is true. The, the only people that have the, the, the superior moral ground is to say, well, I'm oppressed. Look at me, I'm a victim. Now, I, I'm not saying there's not real oppression and real persecution out there that, that we shouldn't fight against. There, there absolutely is. But Keller's point is, I think, a really good one. The way of Jesus was not to exploit or leverage the persecution he endured. He never said, ha, now I'm a victim and let me overpower you with my rightness. It's never how Jesus did it. He never leveraged the world's hatred for his own gain. So we, we don't avoid the world's hatred, but we also don't exploit the world's hatred. There's one more. Again, these are all how Jesus did it. All how Jesus did it. Don't return it. Jesus did not return hatred with hatred. Ever thought about that? It, it was all put on him on the cross and what was his posture back? Father, forgive them. They're blind. They don't know what they're doing even as he was dying for them. 
This is where I wanted to come back to John 3, 16. God so loved the world. Wait a minute. James says, don't be a friend of the world. Jesus says, God loved the world so much he sent his only son. How do you reconcile those things? When John 3, 16 says, God so loved the world, he's not talking about the the upside down wrong power structures of the world. He's not talking about the prince of the world who has blinded humanity and twisted things in darkness. He's talking about the people whom he longs to rescue. He's talking about the inhabitants of the world. In fact, the very next verse, John 3, 17, Jesus says, the father did not send the son to condemn the world, but to save the world. He didn't come to put to, to, put to death the people. He, he came actually to himself lay down his life and be put to death for the freedom of anyone who receives, the freedom of anyone who believes. Jesus returned the hatred of the people of the world with love and we're called to do the same thing. How did he teach his followers to live when they were oppressed and attacked? He said, well, if you're forced to walk one mile, walk two miles. And the context of that would have been Roman soldiers could, could grab onto to Jews and force them to carry their heavy packs, but they could only do it for one mile. And then according to the law, they had to give them their freedom again. Jesus says, I want you to volunteer the second mile. <laughs> Another one you're familiar with. Jesus says, if they strike you on one side of your face, you should turn the other side of your face toward them. Jesus never returned hatred with hatred. Now, I hope this creates a little bit of a tension in you. And some, some of you might be thinking, well, don't, don't we have important things to defend? Like, you know, is that the only way we act? Turning the other cheek, walking the second mile? Don't we have battles to fight? And, and isn't that part of following Jesus as well? I would imagine the disciples felt a lot of that same tension. And you can see how they lived that out in their time, in their place. One of the things you'll see in, in the encouragement of the Apostle Paul is 1 Corinthians, he says, let your motivation for everything you do be love. And sometimes love will motivate you to stand in someone's face and speak strong truth to them. And sometimes love will motivate you to yield and be silent, you see. But Paul says, let love be the motivation of everything you do. The point is this, Jesus never returned hatred with hatred. We must not either. He returned hatred with love. And love will take various forms. But Paul's admonishment is good for us. Let love be the motivation of everything we do. Never hatred. And by the way, never fear. Fear's not our motivation. Hatred's not our motivation. Love must always be our motivation. And we must have the spirit to guide us in that. Because certainly... We need that. Okay, I want to go back. This is what I learned when I was growing up. I still agree with it. I still think it's true. We're in the world, not of the world. I want to add one more in light of what we just talked about. We're for the world, not against the world. And of course, I don't mean we're for the, the, the upside down power structures of the world. We're not for oppression. We're not for any of those things. We're not for selfishness. But we're for the lost people of the world. We're for the, the trapped, enslaved, blind people of the world. And here's why. Because such is who we were. Such is who we were. In the last verse of our text, Jesus quotes the Old Testament. This must be fulfilled. I looked up where that comes from. It comes from two different Psalms. They hated me without cause. One of them is Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a psalm that's 
prophetic about the suffering of Jesus. Psalm 69 is, is written by someone who was being persecuted and his own life was on the line and he's crying out to God. I want to read part of Psalm 69. I want to ask you, who does this sound like? I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. There's that quotation. Mighty are those who would destroy me, who attack me with lies. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach that dishonor covers my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Do you hear the substitution in that? Do you hear the redemption in that? Do you hear the, even the words of our savior on the cross in that? This is Jesus. And, and here's where I'm going with this. You and I must remember, we must remember, we are among those who hated him without cause. We are among those whose rebellion against God, Jesus died for. So when we think about the world, we must think, such was I. Such was I. And I know for you, you might think, oh, I don't remember ever hating God. You were born against him. You were born toward your own selfishness and your own preservation. And Jesus Christ came and paid that penalty for you and set you free from that. And ultimately, this is the only way you'll be able to endure the hatred of the world like Jesus endured the hatred of the world is to understand he endured your hatred out of love for you. And then from that place of humility and gratitude, you can engage the world's hatred because it's about Jesus, not about you. And that leads us to the table. If, if you picked up the communion elements on your way and I wanna invite you to take those out now, we're gonna receive them in, in just a minute. And if you missed it, feel free, even right now to get up from your seat. Uh, the table is for all who've put their trust in Jesus Christ. We would love for you to be a part of this. I'm gonna lead us through it in just a moment. But listen, if you are someone who's not yet shifted your allegiance from yourself to Jesus, I, I, this is not for you. And, and I, I don't say that in judgment. It's not on me to judge you. But here's what I would say. This is one of the things that followers of Jesus do that reminds us we're not of the world. This is strange. This is alien. And if you're among us today and you haven't shifted your allegiance to Jesus Christ, then th this is not for you. This is for us to do, but I want you to feel something. I, I want you to understand that Jesus Christ's arms are open to you. That the invitation for you is to come. The invitation for you is to come and be set free. And that happens through faith. Faith in the life of Christ for you, the death of Christ for you. Trusting in him that he paid the penalty of your own hatred and your own sin. That can be yours this morning and I encourage you by faith to receive that gift. Now for all of us who put our trust in Jesus Christ, this reminds us that the body of Jesus was as broken. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He absorbed our hatred, our animosity, our rebellion and he returned our hatred with love. And for those who believe, let us take the bread.
And after Jesus took the bread with his disciples, he, he then lifted up the cup and he said, this is the new covenant that is in my blood. And that, that means arranged covenant means relationship. It's, it's a way of relating now between God and human beings. And there's something new and, and Jesus died for it. The, the new covenant is this. It's by grace, not works. It's by grace that we are saved. If you believe that, drink the cup with gratitude. And Father, we thank you for loving us enough to die for us, Jesus. And Lord, for, for those of us that even in this moment kind of have our backs turned against God, would you, over time, in your timing, woo us by your love, uh, turn us by your grace, help us to see our true condition and, and your loving hands that would come to rescue us. And we know, Lord, that it, it takes a step of faith to receive, and I pray that for those who have not yet received. And for all of us this morning is, is we're entering into a world and a society after the service is done that fundamentally is against followers of Jesus. Would you help us to walk in that in the way that Jesus did? By his power, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're someone who has been redeemed by Christ, it's only good and right that we would worship Christ together and thank him for our redemption. We're gonna do that through a song. So I wanna invite you to stand and we're gonna speak the name, sing the name of Jesus because that's what the world needs. Let's do that now. <laughs>